0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver, newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. I think we're going to do a bit of an economics-centered show today. We have senior economist at RBC, Robert Hogue. He's going to join us to talk a little bit about the millennial housing ownership issue moving forward and whether we actually have an issue and what measures the governments should and should not be taking – and then after that, we're going to speak to Sean Coakley. He is a market strategist at Cambridge Global Payments. We're talking about the latest GDP numbers from Stats Canada. They're a little underwhelming. So what does this mean moving forward into next week when the Bank of Canada is going to make a rate decision? I also want to let you all know about our 20th anniversary of the Influential Women in Business Awards. That's on March 8th, coming up very quickly at the Fairmont Waterfront Hotel. More details can be found at biv.com events. But first, let's talk to Robert Hogue from RBC. Finance Minister Bill Morneau is widely expected to deliver new measures to assist millennials when entering the housing market. But should we take a step back? think about what these new measures could actually mean for the market going forward. There's a new report out from RBC and joining us today to break it all down. It's Robert Hogue. He's a senior economist at RBC. Robert, great to have you back on the show. Well, hello. So your report, it actually takes issue with the idea that Canada has a home ownership problem here in the first place. Why is that? Tell me what the issue is here.
1: Well, one thing is, to be sure, when you look back in the last 10 years, now home ownership rates in Canada have, have fallen. And, and that's, that's quite clear, but that being said, home ownership rates uh, across uh, no, most uh, of uh, large uh, urban centers in Canada are still high internationally. They're still even high uh, historically. Uh, so, uh, no, so when we look at, uh, at now, from, from that angle, we say, you know, where, where is the problem? What, is, what are we trying to fix with respect to homeownership? And that also applies for uh, uh, younger age groups. It's clear that the millennials have some housing challenges at, at this point, especially in large centres like uh, Vancouver and, and Toronto. But there too, uh, even though homeownership rates for younger age population have decreased over the last uh, a decade, they still remain historically high. Uh, and they still compare uh, uh, favorably relative to, for example, in the U.S. The million millennials in Canada's a uh, ownership rate is higher in Canada than, than it is in U.S. So our view is that, you know, uh, uh, you know, this what are we trying to fix? And we, we don't see a real uh, a problems in terms of home ownership rates in Canada.
0: So a lot of the measures taken by, say, the provincial government here in British Columbia, we also see, say, measures taken by Ottawa with regards to, say, cooling some of the housing markets. I I wonder if, in your opinion, those are actually kind of getting on the right track so that I don't know if other measures are taken, it could actually make the housing markets, you know, like spark to life again. We could see prices go out of reach, and we would create even more affordability issues for markets like Vancouver and Toronto, which has been facing a lot of tough issues with affordability. Is there a right balance that we have to strike?
1: Well, yes. I mean, ultimately, time, 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 time will tell. But what we've seen so far is is certainly you know what uh, the, the markets are used to be or uh, Overheated, have cooled substantially. You know, Vancouver is a, is a case in point where actually the market now is is uh, quite soft, and we're seeing you no know, prices uh, uh, declining uh, uh, moderately, and in the, the Toronto's housing market also. Uh, cool down significantly relative to where it was at the end of 2016 or early 2017. So clearly, and these are, these cool downs in those markets are policy induced. And this is not a reflection of a weaker economy and therefore weaker demand for housing. These, these cool down uh, were uh, basically designed by policy. These were desired by policy. Uh, so clearly these have had a, a, an effect and and if we're uh, considering policy options going forward our view and and these are uh, by and large the policy measures put in place uh, uh focus on the de- on the demand side they basically raised the bar to home ownership they uh, uh they made it more difficult uh for first time home buyers for example effectively uh, to uh, to own a home so if we're trying to ultimately tackle the underlying issue of housing affordability, and, and especially for first-time home buyers or millennials, uh, we have to think twice about relaxing those, those uh, measures uh, to make it, uh, no, to, trying to stimulate demand, because ultimately, if you di- did that and did nothing on the supply side, prices will rise, and so you may end up helping... Uh, uh, a certain uh, a gen, well, a, a number of first-time home buyers for a short period of time, but then you still end up with the same problem of unaffordable market because prices have increased. So have, you know, we're, we're telling policymakers: is tread very carefully if you if you want to uh, uh, help uh, first-time home buyers, it may work if you focus on the demand side and neglect the supply side. You might end up basically in the same predicament just down the road uh, not uh, in a too distant future.
0: Well, in your opinion, are, are we getting to a point here in Canada that maybe too many Canadians could become overextended, especially if we consider some of these measures such as, say, you know, relaxing the mortgage stress test or you know what have you moving forward?
1: Well, ultimately, that's the other uh, the potential unintended uh, consequence. If if you did, uh, you know, you relax some of the measures that have been put in place uh, uh, in, in recent years, and you end up stimulating demand, and you end up with more buyers. Uh, 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 out there, and therefore more people with uh, uh, mortgages and debt, uh, if, if you're concerned about household debt in Canada, these measures would do nothing to, to address those those concerns. Now, there's been some, for the last year, year and a half, we've seen a little bit of an improvement in the household debt uh, in, in Canada in terms of, uh, for example, debt-to-income ratio, uh, but if you start to stimulate uh, housing demand again, or, or or home buyer demand again, uh, then you may uh, start to reverse that 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 improvement.
0: So, Robert, last fall we had municipal elections here in British Columbia, and one of the things that became very clear as we were interviewing Oral candidates here in Vancouver is that there really did not seem to be some sort of panacea with regards to addressing some of the affordability issues. But I'm wondering if we can take it piece by piece. You guys are narrowing down or looking into, say, the supply side of things. I'm wondering, in your opinion, what kind of things should be considered or whether it's just maybe governments working together with regards to addressing the supply side of this problem here?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is not for one level of government to uh, to have the sole responsibility to address that particular issue. Uh, and this is for all level of governments to to working uh together and and coordinate various policies to ensure because uh, at the end of the day the the reason prices rose so so rapidly and uh just a little while ago uh was the inability of the supply side to adjust quickly enough to rising demand so uh, if all levels of governments uh, work together to uh, to ensure uh, that there's not uh, that there's no major obstacles for the for home builders and developers to uh, uh, to act quickly uh, and to have uh, to be able to respond to higher demand and then you are you no know, uh, helping down the road uh, avoiding another kind of uh, uh, rapid rise in, in prices because now in a market system, uh, prices are the uh, uh, the adjusting mechanism. So all governments together, and we're seeing we're seeing some some definite uh, um, uh, efforts on that front on on the parts of government. Uh, our 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 point is that don't 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 shift focus. Continue to focus on the supply side. Work together. Don't start uh, stimulating demand at this stage as as long as the demand side is does the supply side is, hasn't been really addressed.
0: And, and I'm not trying to get it too much into the granular here with regards to Vancouver specifically, but there are arguments being made by people that are not in favor of some of the developers, saying, "Well, the developers want to just boost supply, in- increase this density." And they feel that there could be concerns that very wealthy foreign buyers could come in and simply fill in that supply very quickly. In your opinion, should we be, you know, finding that right balance with regards to measures that have already been introduced, such as a foreign buyers tax? Do you think that there's any weight to that argument that some people are be making that, say, this supply increase would not do that much without other measures from the government? Well at this stage
1: the set of measures, especially in the Vancouver area, have been, uh, have, have focused uh, quite uh, clearly on on the foreign buyer issue, for example. this is probably in canada uh, uh, the the area that has uh, put uh, the most uh, stringent uh, set of rules to uh, 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 to control uh, uh, foreign buyers so uh i to me uh having investors involved in the housing market is not uh, you know a bad thing uh we need some supply out there a lot of time it, it we're when you're talking about a new uh, uh condo project uh, which has you know, will take several years to to come to fruition uh, a lot of times it's the uh, the investors that effectively get those projects going because they have the one they are the ones with the most patience uh, and and uh, are willing to finance those projects effectively yeah. uh, so uh, the risk that uh, and, and with the rules in in Vancouver about uh, vacant uh, units and, and you know the tax on taxing vacant units it, it i would think is probably highly unlikely that you you would have ultimately those uh, those investors you no, know, being uh um uh, foreign or domestic leaving once the, the unit is complete to leave those units empty uh because it, this this would be quite quote, quite onerous uh, to them so at this stage uh i see very little risk that if you uh, uh focus on the supply side that those units will be scooped up and then left idle i think those would be put to work because when we talk uh the issue here is not only on the home ownership side uh, as a home like affordability on the home ownership side it's also on on the rental side so if you know uh, uh you, you the, the, the supply ends up uh, growing the inventory of uh, rental units, then well, so be it. And then it would not be a bad thing actually.
0: One of the other things that I think is worth noting here is that low interest rates have really been driving a lot of the real estate market for many years now going on in BC. I'm curious, and you know this, Bank of Canada has a has a very tough balancing act to do, but do you think hindsight being 2020, maybe the Bank of Canada should have been a little bit more hawkish the last few years, especially when we look at today's GDP numbers, and we can kind of guess that maybe the Bank of Canada will not be raise, uh, hiking rates next week?
1: Uh, if hawkish, you mean uh, having not increased interest rates? I've mean, uh, that. And probably interest rate could have been could have risen earlier had it not been for the, the sharp drop in uh, or or the slump in the, the uh, energy sector back in 2015-16, uh, which prompted the bank uh, to lower interest rates uh, at, at that point. And, and so, uh, uh, no. Our view is is that you know, the Bank of Canada was right to to raise interest rates. Uh, we knew all along, and so did the bank that uh, high household debt made households uh, more vulnerable to increases in interest rates. And like you know, today's uh, GDP numbers sort of uh, uh, borne that, uh, born that to mind because uh, household spending, for example, uh, was much lower than, than most people expected in the fourth quarter. Uh, and, but that's, that's, that's fine. We're still an economy that's, that's operating, a, a national economy that's still operating at uh, either at full potential or very close to. And the right policy setting at this stage is to be uh, much closer to neutral. Uh, And, you know, uh, keep in mind that uh, the overnight rate at one and three quarter percent is still below what would be uh, uh, considered a a, a neutral level, which is uh, estimated to be somewhere between two and a half and three and a half. So, you know, so higher interest rates are slowing down the market, that's fine. Uh, And this is in in part uh, part of the, uh, uh, I guess, the intent of of, uh, raising interest rates is to slow down the economy. And that would affect a number of factors, uh, sectors, and that's including the housing market.
0: Well, always going to be up for debate what we should be doing with the housing market here in British Columbia. And Robert, I really do appreciate you offering your insights to us today.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure.
0: That's Robert Hogue, Senior Economist at RBC. Stay with us, Sean Coakley from Cambridge Global Payments. He's going to be joining us right after this. So the latest GB... Uh, Let me take that from the top. So the latest GDP numbers from Statistics Canada came out today, Friday, March 1st, and I guess you can say they're a little underwhelming. With us to break it down is Sean Coakley. He's a market strategist at Cambridge Global Payments. Sean, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So the numbers, as I said, were a little underwhelming when we look at how the economy is performing at this point. Did they take you and maybe other specialists by surprise here? Didn't take me
2: by surprise uh, in particular. But uh, one thing that we should note is that overall, like uh, economic consensus for forecasting Q4 economic GDP was that uh, the Canadian economy would slow down, that we would actually see a negative trend in growth uh, for the last quarter of the year. What's really remarkable is that this is like a sudden stop in terms of how rapidly we saw a deterioration in the different components of gdp um overall the latest print is actually quite a bit below what expectations were signaling for q4 and as a result we saw a pretty marketed move in the canadian dollar with it losing about a cent relative to the u.s dollar in just a just an hour or so
0: yeah and we have not had a great i guess year or so with regards to the canadian dollar i'm wondering if we do see the economy Continue to slow down, which people do expect. Where do you end up seeing the dollar going maybe throughout the rest of 2019?
2: Okay. So um, basically, when we take a look at the Canadian dollar, the, the risk is really to the downside. So what that means is uh, when when guys like me talk about the, the dollar, we're usually referring to the U.S. dollar. But in this instance, we'll be talking about the loonie. Uh, The loonie is um, really set for, uh, basically, harder times throughout throughout the rest of the year. We really can't predict what the short-term trajectory of the loonie might be, but if you look at it on a probabilistic basis, it's very likely that the the loonie will continue to underperform. And it's not just driven by uh, data that's uh, that's with respect to just the Canadian economy itself. Overall we've seen... um, a wide variety of uh, leading economic indicators globally start to turn negative around like the middle of last year and now it's starting to feel, feed into uh, real uh, economic activity that's occurring in the current period. And when that starts to happen, it generally is uh, leads to like a risk-off sentiment in terms of the trading of financial assets and what that typically equates to is uh, fund flows into U.S. dollar treasuries, which means that the U.S. dollar tends to gain relative to other currencies, and other safer haven currencies also tend to gain. So you would expect to see increases in the Japanese yen and Swiss franc as well.
0: And this is very much kind of a global macro issue here because, look, the United States undergoing, I believe, the second longest growth period since the Second World War right now. Those growth periods do have to come to an end. We also have slowdowns in China, from a global perspective, it's not your it's it's not in your opinion that you know Canada is somehow immune to everything that's going to be happening you know globally, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. in many instances, the Canadian economy is actually more exposed than some other economy, uh, I guess, uh, developed world economies. Part of the reason why we're more exposed is just uh, some of the imbalances that have grown in our economy since the global financial crisis. Really, in the last few years, what's really been driving the Canadian economic growth has been consumer spending and a lot of uh, activity in the housing and construction sectors of the economy. One of the biggest drivers of the underperformance in Q4 data for uh, Canada was a marketed uh, decrease in construction and housing-related activities. So that's really been a drag on the Canadian economy, and if you look at how Basically, new credit issuance and the availability of credit, and overall sentiment and positioning in the housing market, including just like anecdotal evidence of significant uh, slowdowns in purchasing activities and mass, uh, very large headline cuts in. Uh, house prices when they actually do sell, um, really all of that pretends that, that that sector of the Canadian economy is going to underperform. And because it's been such a big component of our overall GDP growth, uh, that that actually spells a lot of trouble for the Canadian economy because we haven't really seen um, any other of, of that slack get picked up by, say, the manufacturing or oil and gas sectors of the economy in Canada. So really, we're in a very uh, negative situation, at least in the the short to medium term, for what the Canadian economic prospects might be.
0: So when you absorb all of this data, what do you think that means with regards to the Bank of Canada moving into next week, and uh, any possible rate decisions on their part?
2: It's a very interesting question. So for the most part... um, most market forecasters didn't expect much activity out of the Bank of Canada. Really, we would expect that if there was any sort of rate movement in uh, on the part of the Bank of Canada, that would happen in the latter half of the year, rather than the front half of the year. And it really looks like that that is going to play out. Uh, one of the things that's really quite interesting about uh, the Bank of Canada, in particular, relative to other central banks, is that they've moved away from being uh, driven by or rather granting forward guidance, so basically outlining what their potential moves are long before they actually make them. So we're in a situation now where the predictability of the of the Bank of Canada is actually a lot less uh, than it has been historically and certainly to uh, what their, uh, their counterparts in other developed countries might be, but that's actually likely a positive for a long-term uh, economic growth in Canada, but um, for the most part, it looks more and more likely that uh, the Bank of Canada will sit out interest rate increases for a longer period than what we had initially expected. So we may even see um, the potential for no rate increases uh, this year.
0: Oh wow! Uh, that it, it's also when you talk about the predictability parts, I, I think maybe the, the example that springs to mind is the the post oil shock you know that alberta faced and i, I know when uh, Stephen steven ended up uh you know uh you know doing his uh policy work there a lot of banks kind of sat it out and like they, they didn't exactly know what to do because we saw kind of same divergences between say u.s policy and canadian policy so it, it is kind of a uh just one of those does it feel like no man's land to a certain degree like we're in uncharted territory at, at some points
2: well, there are historical precedents for what's occurred uh, in the past. So we can look at what had happened in the, the 80s and 90s in terms of like the recessions that we saw in the early 80s and early 90s. And it really starts to look like that's kind of been a similar situation that the Canadian economy is positioned now. In terms of central bank policy, uh, we have seen what amounts to like a regime change in how they... Uh, make and communicate their decisions, ultimately it's likely a good thing because it means that uh, financial institutions or or people like me that are involved in uh, capital allocation decisions are going to be far less, how would I say it, um, uh, or far more conservative in terms of the decisions that we make. Because really the challenges that, that we're in in the present period in the Canadian economy are due to um basically just excessive uh uh lending and excessive risk taking in prior periods. So now we're entering in a in a in the in the latter half of the cycle where the, the negative consequences of those risks are starting to show up. And if we have a central bank that is less predictable, it should mean that um economic actors are less likely to take on on risks that could lead to say, the growth and imbalances that become precarious for the Canadian economy.
0: So that said, if you're not forecasting any further rate hikes going on this year, do you think that maybe the Bank of Canada, if they could do a bit of a do-over, they would have introduced more rate hikes maybe last year, at least one or two more, just so that they would have more tools in their tool bag moving forward if and when the economy really starts to kind of uh, slow down to a more concerning degree?
2: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting comment because in in uh Bank of or in Governor Polo's own testimony, he frequently references uh basically returning back home, which he means is moving uh bank policy rates back to what's considered a neutral interest rate where there's no stimulative effect on the economy and no contractionary effect on the economy. And by all measures, we're still away from that figure. We're on the downside of that. So Really, I think some of the rate moves that were made in the past really were efforts in order to get closer to that level, basically to provide us with room to maneuver when the, the cycle um, ought actually ends. Uh, and then we would have ammunition from a monetary policy perspective in order to address a, a slowdown in the economy. But one of the key distinctions that, that's different between Canada and uh, say the United States or the European Union or the United Kingdom is that both administrations that we've had say over the last ten years, both uh, liberal and conservative administrations, have been far more proactive in terms of engaging in fiscal policy stimulus to offset uh, declines in in the, the business cycle. So that. We're not just in a situation where monetary policy alone is the only game in town. We have uh, currently an administration that that looks like it's likely, if we see an economic slowdown, to actually take measures to kind of mitigate the negative impacts of that. So if we do happen to see a recession or economic slowdown in the next year or 18 months, there's a good chance that some of the, the really negative uh, aspects of that slowdown will be uh, mitigated, and if you also look at how Canada's position from like a sovereign sovereign debt load um, perspective relative to its peers, we also have a, a very low government debt to GDP ratio, especially if we compare ourselves to say the United States or Western Europe or Japan or China. Uh, so there's still a lot of ammunition there from a fiscal stimulus uh, perspective. But overall, I think that you're likely right. Uh, A lot of the interest rate moves that that were being made by Governor Polo's were to get us back to that neutral rate so that we would have ammunition uh, if and when there is an economic slowdown.
0: Well, Sean, our eyes are going to be on the Bank of Canada next week. And until then, I want to thank you for joining us and offering your insights on the program today. Anytime. That's Sean Coakley, market strategist at Cambridge Global Payments. And that's it for the show today, but we're going to be back next week. And for now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts as well as Stitcher. I also encourage you to share with your friends and leave a review as it's going to help others find this podcast. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.